Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Peter Reese. Peter is a real estate broker and investor, and he's cracked the code on land flipping in the US. It's very interesting to hear his strategies and how much he's been able to scale land flipping in the last three years. I think you'll enjoy the show and a different perspective on real estate investing. Hey, Peter, I just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. How's it going today? Great, great. Well, thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, glad you could be on the show. Can we start off by just telling the listeners maybe where you're at and uh, what you do, some background, that kind of stuff? Sure. Well, I am in Southern California in San Diego and uh, not too bad of a spot. The weather's pretty nice year round. I can't complain too much. So I've, I've lived here about half my life. Uh, previous to that, I'm from Pennsylvania originally, so the other end of the United States. But I came out here after college, met my wife, and... Uh, Pretty soon after that, got involved in in some real estate investing stuff. You know, our first step was obviously buying our first home, and that was uh, that was a big step for us. But we did some you know minor repairs on the home, and actually it went very well. And we ended up selling the house a couple of years after we bought it for a pretty good profit. I think about at the time it was probably about twenty to twenty five percent profit on the property. So I think we made about fifty thousand. And uh, we purchased it for just under 200000 So at the time, we thought we were real estate moguls. And it kind of fueled our, our passion for getting more into real estate. We ended up actually, you know, buying and selling a bunch of homes, mostly, you know, doing flips. Some of them, we did nothing to them. We just bought them at the right price and resold them. So things are going well with that. The market ended up crashing here in uh, about 2007-ish. And prior to that, I'd actually gotten my broker's license. And when the market crashed, I was like, well, home flipping is really not the best thing to be involved with right at the moment. So I ended up focusing on selling bank-owned properties for the banks, you know, selling the foreclosures, because that's what was selling at this point in Southern California. So just kind of went to where the market was. So I was thankful to have my broker's license. And it allowed me to make money when a lot of other people in real estate were struggling. Through that, I got a lot of really good contacts with large investment companies. So for a while there, I was solely focused on finding them deals, finding them as many deals as I could. That was really kind of fun. I I like working with those type of clients because it's all about the numbers for them, just business and nothing nothing else, no emotions or anything else involved. So I had fun doing that and and did really well with that as well. Then uh, transitioned out of real estate for a little while uh, with the business with my wife. My wife has had a blog for a long time lifestyle and travel blog. And we developed a whole business around training other bloggers and travel bloggers uh, with that. So that consumed a number of years of our lives. And uh, that was a a great fun journey. We still have that business. But after a while, I kind of got the itch to get back into real estate and get back into real estate investing specifically. And I stumbled into some people that were talking about land flipping online. And I just, it kind of piqued my interest because I would see these anecdotes of people saying, Hey, I bought this property for 10,000 and I sold it for 30,000, you know, in two months. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, that's a triple my money in, in two months, that would be a nice return. I felt like, Oh, that's, that's kind of the business model that, you know, sort of aligns with my skill set. So I just learned everything I could about it and sort of went all in. And then in March of 2021, just about two years ago now, we resold our first property, land flip property. 
that first year in 2021, we ended up doing a little over 1.2 million, like 1.25 million in revenue. And about 50% of that was gross profit. So on average, you know, we're trying to buy a property and we're trying to double our money after all closing costs and commissions and everything. So that was 2021, about 1.25 million in revenue. 2022 ended up doing just shy of 3.5 million. And then, you know, just shy of the 50% gross profit margin as well. And then 2023, looking to do 10 million. So we're already well on our way. Oh, that's amazing. It sounds like you're almost uh, like the king of pivoting. So you've pivoted multiple times through your career, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's I get bored with one thing or another, but <laughs> uh, more more like it's uh, I try to pivot, you know, when I see the signs on the wall and, you know, a lot of things don't work forever, but they work for a while. And then if you notice the signs they've been not working any longer, then it's just best to kind of shift to what is working. So yeah, pivoting is yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah, I've done the same actually throughout my career, but uh find it interesting how you were able to do that when the market pulled back, you're working with the banks. Did you do any land kind of like small land flips that kind of before you got into it and uh, that kind of helped pique your interest or did you just, you're only doing uh, kind of your traditional real estate and then you learned about it and then just went and found your first piece of land? Yeah, it's crazy. I, I wouldn't have considered myself any sort of specialist in land at all before I got into it. You know, I wasn't buying land or anything. It's just my expertise is in single family residential homes. So I never considered even even that as a viable option for investing because I always assumed that, you know, land just takes longer to sell and that that was never exciting to me. You know, buying a piece of land that's maybe someday going to be in the path of progress and and worth a lot more down, you know, in 20 years. Like that was never exciting to me. So I, I didn't even really know that this model existed. So when I kind of stumbled into it, I was like, well, you know, I don't know anything about how to evaluate these properties, but I could learn it pretty quickly. You know, I, I have a lot of experience in real estate and really it's a matter of going down a checklist of things on a property. And then each area has its own specific things that you need to check out, I guess. But I was confident that I could figure all that stuff out. And I did. So what I find interesting, like I, I am a realtor and I, you know, you run comps on a property and, you know, you find the same square footage, kind of same, you know, if it's a two story, you, you kind of match everything, right? And in the same neighborhood and, and then you find your comps, your comparables, and uh, maybe, you know, you're looking at the upgrades, that kind of thing. But I think with land, I've, I've had some experience with it, but when I have looked at it, there's nuances to it, like the uh, topog was it? How do you say it? topography? Topography, yeah, yeah. So you have like topography, you have a view, you have maybe soil conditions, you have you know like there's so many little nuances and that kind of, in my opinion, may change the value of that piece of land. So how do you get you know familiar with that and then like with actually evaluating the land? Yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, and you're right. If you're looking at you know some sort of residential subdivision where all the lots are the same. That's one thing. That's pretty easy. You know, it's just like, you know, evaluating a single family home in a community like that. But when you're talking land and most of the land that we buy is rural properties, you know, five to 10 acres plus, these pieces of land all have, they're all different. You know, one of them could be super sloped and be like on the side of a mountain. One of them could be completely flat. One could have trees on it. One could be half wetlands. One could be in the flood zone. One could, you know, uh, have no access to utilities. You know, there's a lot of different variables like that. And, uh, you know, you're looking at comps like you would in residential, you know, single family homes, but you're just kind of adjusting for a lot of different factors. And ultimately, you're trying to find properties that were the most similar that have sold in that kind of general rural area. But one of the things that have really helped us a lot and is really part of the system that I do is that 
I rely heavily on local land broker or agent partners. So I loop them into our buy process. You know, so when we're buying a property, we'll send it over to them and say, Hey, what do you think of this property? Anything I should be aware of? What do you think you could resell it for? And then as soon as we close on the property, we obviously give them the listing as well. So uh, we try to make it a win-win. And, uh, you know, I've been helped out in countless ways by local land agents and brokers. And I'm just a big believer in that, you know, they help us kind of avoid problems sometimes and help us maybe recognize something that we didn't realize was such a good property. You know, it's in a really hot area or, you know, they may have a whole big buyer's list for anything that comes up in this particular region or something like that. So that's helped out tremendously. And they've taught me how to evaluate properties in their specific area, you know? Nice. So you tap into the local experts and that obviously helps for sure. Tremendously. Yes. Most people can kind of wrap their head around traditional, you know, residential flip. So what would be some similarities and some differences between that and land flipping? Yeah. I mean, you know, flipping single family homes, obviously you're trying to hold it for as short of a time as possible. That's very similar to what we're doing in land flipping. We're trying to buy it and sell it as quickly as possible. When we're buying it, there is no, you know, hard money to purchase these properties, you know, no like uh, short-term, you know, private lenders really that are interested in lending for land. You can easily find deal partners, meaning, you know, if you find a deal, there are a lot of interested partners that will put up the money to buy the deal and just you split the profits with them when it sells. So that's kind of a big difference, kind of the funding side. So we buy pretty much everything with our own cash. Uh, you know, some of the larger properties, sometimes we'll look at a deal partner with those properties, but most of the properties we're buying with our own cash. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing is, you know, we're buying all these properties off market, meaning we're generating all of our deals with direct mail. We're sending letters and offers to these people. And then they respond. We negotiate a deal and then we get it under contract and close on the purchase. And then Sometimes we'll do some minor improvements to the property. You know, it could be something like as easy as clearing some paths, some access paths on the property, could be getting a survey, could be getting a perk test or soil test. And sometimes we do absolutely nothing to the property and just put it on the market and resell it. So it doesn't have to be a situation where we're actually doing value add to the property like you would on a flip generally, but the whole key is to buying it, right? So typically land is not as liquid as a single family home is or residential property. So that's kind of the leverage that we get from the buy side is that, you know, these sellers, they know that if they're going to put it on the market and try to get retail for it, it may take some time. But the kind of window that we work in is we buy things, you know, cash and we close very quickly. And then we bought it at a price which allows us to then resell it at a good price as well. So. And then uh, would you be doing fencing and stuff if the land requires it? Like say if it's for cattle, that kind of thing? Um, I've never done it. You know, I do know some investors that have done that type of thing. It just kind of depends on the area you're working on regionally. You know, there could be things that might appeal to buyers in a certain area. But the areas that I've worked in, it hasn't been, you know, something like that has not been uh, of interest. Yeah. And what about uh, remediation? Because, you know, here in Alberta, we've got a lot of old kind of oil wells, that kind of thing on land. How do you avoid kind of getting kind of caught with something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had to do any sort of remediation on any of these properties. I mean, there are some areas we have bought properties with all the oil wells and things and pretty much just sell them like we buy them, you know? Just don't so develop in those areas kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. There's normally, you know, setbacks if you're going to, you know, um, build on it or something like that. 
Would you hold a land piece of land long enough to look at rezoning it or like uh, subdividing into acreages or? Yeah, I would do that. You know, we've done some minor subdivision stuff, meaning, you know, in a lot of these areas, you can split up a parcel into five separate lots with really not much trouble at all. Basically, you hire a surveyor, they create the map and stake it out on the ground, and then they record that with the county, and then it's done. Then you can sell off individual parcels. So we've done that on some properties that are, you know, definitely their best use would be a residential subdivision. We hired an engineer to basically map out what a potential subdivision will look like, and then market that with a commercial broker to get some more value out of the property. But we haven't taken it to that further step of actually getting it approved for that subdivision, getting everything you know done on paper, basically. That would be the next step. And I would do that for the right property in the right situation, but haven't done that yet. Just kind of taking the step before that, which is the kind of presenting like what it could be. So Yeah, I see. And then you've been able to scale quite rapidly to obviously huge volume. What would you say would be some of the things that enabled you to do that? Mm. Yes, building out a great team around me. That's one big thing because there's too many different things going on, especially once you start doing some real volume. There's just too much work for one or two people. So you definitely have to start building a team and the team has to be different. Different people specialize in different functions, you know, and allows them to focus on their narrow area and do it really well. So hiring really good people and working with really good people on our team. For sure. What what would be like a team that would be required? Because I honestly, I'm familiar with, traditional flips and stuff with the land flipping it's definitely uh, new to me and i'm sure a lot of our listeners uh you know new to them as well so who would be some of the key players on your team yeah yeah some of the people i've got on my team i've got an acquisition manager and the acquisition manager their job is to basically be the point of contact for all these sellers that we're discussing properties with so you know as we get incoming leads coming in first of all i've got an inbound call service that we contract with you know they're answering the phone 24 hours a day they filter out some of the people that may not be motivated seller. Then the lead gets to us and gets entered into our CRM by our due diligence manager, due diligence and lead manager, we call them. And then, you know, they kind of format that they do some basic research, load it all on the CRM. At that point, automation that takes over in our CRM, texting them, letting them know that we're working on it and that type of thing. We've got an um, acquisition manager that, you know, their job is to make contact with the seller, you know, go through some questions and kind of work out a deal with them. And once they get a property under contract, then it moves to the next stage, which is kind of our due diligence phase. So we've got that due diligence manager. They basically order all the due diligence, hire the photographer, do that type of thing. Also got a um, closing manager, transaction manager that does the buy side transactions. They also handle the resale transactions. As part of the earlier step that I forgot to mention is a property analyst that we've got. And they kind of work on the acquisition side with the acquisition manager. They're looking at all these properties in depth, evaluating them. What are they worth? What questions do we have for the sellers? What things should we be concerned about? Is this a property we want to buy? You know, things like that. That person also kind of reviews all the more detailed due diligence that comes in later, you know, after we get a property under contract, you know, like reviewing all the photos, reviewing the report from the photographer that walked the property getting broker opinions, things along those lines, reviewing the title report. And uh, then also have an asset manager now. And the asset manager is responsible for managing all the property listings that we have. And also any sort of value add type projects, managing those 
things. Uh, I've got an executive assistant that kind of helps keep the team together and everyone operating efficiently and also works on other projects with me as well. Yeah. So that's pretty much the team at this it's, point. Like to me, it sounds complex and that you, I mean, it, and you've scaled significantly. So just starting out, did you wear all those hats then? You were just oh, yeah. you were doing me. it all? Yeah. So you, yeah, pretty much me. I mean, I knew how to do every single step of it and I learned how to do every single step of it. And as you grow, you can just start adding on those pieces. And basically as I grew, I just sort of hired someone to take a part of my work away from me. Yeah. It makes so, sense. And I'm, I'm still trying to do that, but for sure. And then did you right out of the gate to start with direct mail? How did you actually start to get some momentum with the land? Direct mail. Yep. Yep. Direct mail has been all of our leads and all of our deals. So, you know, I saw other people that are doing it. I found a letter that they were sending out and then I just started uh, build a list and just started mailing. My first batch of mail was 10,000 letters. And then my whole thing is keeping a very, very consistent you know, schedule of mailing. So if you keep the mailing consistent, then your lead flow is going to be consistent. Your deals are going to be consistent and then you'll be able to continually grow your revenue. Yeah, for sure. So how frequently would you be sending these mailers to people? I'm sending out 50,000 pieces of mail a month now. And I'm sending out a batch on the first of 25,000 and then a batch on the 15th of 25,000. Wow. Incredible. Obviously, you've scaled, you've grown over time. Um, yeah, I've been able to work up into that. You know, at, at the beginning, I did probably, you know, the first few months I was doing, you know, maybe 10,000 a month, which is still a commitment. You know, was, that's probably like 5500 or $6,000 just mail. But I viewed that as an investment. I knew that would come back to me. And my first deal, I probably made all my mail costs back for like three months. So, yeah, amazing. And then have you ever bought a piece of land and lost money? Have you ever made a bad deal, you know, since you started? Well, I'd consider some bad deals, but I never lost any money on any deal. So I've done over, I think, 120 at this point and haven't lost any money. There have been a couple where I've been like $100, $100 profit, $500 profit, you know, like very razor thin margins just because I refused to lose money on those deals. When I was negotiating the deal, I'm like, this is my absolute bottom line. I'm not going below this. You know, so a couple of those deals worked out that way just because I held them forever. I knew they weren't going to make me a lot of money. I just wanted to move on from them. So I, I had a couple of deals like that, but I'm happy. It's with a learning, that. right? Yep, for sure. And then, so when I look at land, at least around uh, Calgary, Alberta, some land, I mean, it sells quickly. It sells, you know, within two weeks. And you look at another piece of land and it's sitting there 240 days later, nobody's even touched it. So how do you kind of find that sweet spot for something that's actually going to, you know, move pretty quickly? It's the price. Well, first of all, you know, the good properties, when they're priced right, they'll sell right away. Because, you know, the good properties don't come along that often. And there's more problem properties out there than there are good ones, really. So big thing I look at is I only buy properties, which I would consider good properties, you know, they don't have any major issues to them, you know, no property is perfect, they all have some sort of issue in a way. But as a whole, I want to be buying good properties. And the other thing is the property has to be priced right. So I get a really good idea what that is, you know, it's not retail value. I price things less than retail value, 80 to 90%, depending on the market and how busy that particular area is. But, you know, we price things aggressively, so they'll sell fast. So if you see a property that's been on the market for a while, it's been on the market too long because the price is too high for what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you just kind of maybe go in a bit more detail? What is a good piece of land? And then we're going to go to the opposite. What's a piece of land that you wouldn't touch as mm-hmm. a flipper? Yeah. Yeah. So a good piece of land generally 
you know, I try to look at it from a buyer perspective and it just depends on the area, what's typical for an area, what buyers are looking for. But say in a lot of these areas, I would consider a good piece of land to be something that's got road frontage, meaning it's not down some like two mile dirt road and the access is really difficult. So it would have access, it would have road frontage on a paved road. It would have decent topography. You know, it could be rolling or it could be completely flat. But anything that's too steep is really very limited usage, unless you're just looking at like a view building site or something like that, like if it had amazing views. But other factors like does it have nice trees on it, you know, wetlands on it. So different things like that come into play. But those are the main things. So what about like water and wells? Is that important when you're looking for a good piece of land to sell? In certain areas, water is a big issue. In other areas, it's a given that there's going to be some sort of water availability. So it just kind of depends on the area, really. You know, some areas, you know, might have access to a municipal water source, you know, like a municipal like water company. But uh, a lot of these rural areas, they may not. So, you know, having a well on those things is kind of essential if you're going to build a home on them. But many of the areas that we deal with, that's not a problem. But, you know, in the West and Midwest and Southwest, there's some issues when it comes to water. So you have to be a little bit more careful in those situations. Yeah, for sure. And then now if we just kind of pivot to the bad, if there's a train track going through this piece of land, if there's a pipeline, is there some things or, or maybe like you were talking about access, maybe it's in the middle and there's no road access. What's going to make you kind of avoid a piece of land? Yeah, that, that last one you mentioned is a really big red flag for me. I mean, we don't buy landlocked properties anymore. I bought one and it was you know, just a challenge to sell it. So I kind of vowed, oh, I'm not going to buy landlocked properties anymore. By landlock, I just mean that it's kind of like in an island by itself. There's no road, there's no deeded access to even get to a main road. So yes, it may be a cool property. And if you have a helicopter, it might be really cool. <laughs> but for most people, they're not going to want to buy it. You know, I know some investors that buy those properties, and then they just try to sell them to a neighbor, you know, but the problem is that you've got a very limited buyer pool and you better be buying it ultra cheap. So you, it's very attractive to that neighbor because you don't know if those neighbors have money or they want to expand or, you know, who knows. But Yeah, that sounds like super high risk to me. You're, yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, these people are buying, they're buying them very, very cheap. I know that. So, you know, maybe they're just passing it off to another investor really cheap. Yeah, maybe that's their plan. For sure. Or maybe possibly renting the land out, I guess. Do you ever buy land and actually just hold it and rent it out? No, I haven't done that, but there are some ways to make income from land that I know that some investors focus on. You know, we did recently purchase a property that had a um, active lease for a gas well that was on there. So that was generating a little bit of income, but it was, a, you know, just a raw piece of land. There are other ways that you can do it, you know, with the renewable energy, you know, the, with the way things are going, you know, converting our grid, you know, they're trying to convert the electrical grid to all renewable energy by 2035, I think it is. So there's a big opportunity for some properties, you know, potentially put on solar panels or, you know, turn it into a solar farm or even a wind farm or something like that. So you could obviously generate income that way. And if you didn't want to develop that yourself, there are other green energy, you know, developers that will lease the property for you and just kind of make the whole process turnkey. But it's got to be a lot of their criteria in order to work for something like that as well. For sure. Now, any issues if you see a pipeline going through a piece of land? Is that a bit of a flag or? Um, it's pretty common, actually. I mean, there's generally just an easement, you know, so you can obviously walk on it, you could do everything, you can't build on top of that area. But you know, a lot of these larger properties have stuff like that, like sometimes, 
And it's not a huge hindrance. It's not one of those things that's a red flag by any means. It just kind of has to be taken into consideration with the value. And it's not going to scare off a lot of potential buyers, but they're probably not going to pay as much for it as they would with the property that doesn't have that, you know. Yeah. Any other thing is, is, you know, electrical transmission lines, it's the same thing. Yeah, those are more of an eyesore for sure than mm-hmm. underground yeah. pipeline. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right about like if you actually see the routes and stuff, it's actually pretty incredible how many pipelines are out there, you know, yeah. going across the land, right? Yeah, um, I'm sure in your area too, you see that. Oh, a lot. yeah, they're yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And then what's the timeline you're looking at? Like by the time you acquire it and to turn it around, get it on the market and actually sold, what's kind of your days on market goal? Yeah, our average hold time is 60 days. Wow. Yeah. That's, so that's that's, that's always our target. Yeah. And that includes the resale contract time period too. So we have it on the market, you know, it might be on the market a couple of days, it might be on the market a month or so. And then we've got that resale like contract period, you know, we're with the title company or escrow or whatever it's required that area. And that could be 30 days as well, you know, so 30 to 60 days. So it, you know, it just depends like, but on average, we're able to keep that at about 60 days. Yeah, that makes sense. And then for financing with the big banks, I know at least in Canada, you know, it can be harder. You need a lot of money down to buy land. Is that what you run into as well with your buyers? Yeah. So there's not a lot of buyers that use land loans. They do come up sometimes, but most of the buyers end up being cash or they end up being cash, but really they get financing maybe from their primary residence. Like maybe they'll get a second mortgage for you know, their primary home. So then they have that extra cash to actually buy the land that way. So yeah, we can see that sense. a lot, but a lot of cash buyers actually. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Are you doing any land flipping in Canada or are you kind of got a target area in the U.S.? Yeah, just only doing the U.S.? I've heard a lot of investors talking about it. And I think the big restriction in Canada that they you know, run into is the availability of the public records. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong. You know, in the United States, like all the land ownership records are public information. So all these different counties, every state, everywhere, you can look up, you know, who owns these pieces of land and it's all, all on public records. I'm told it's not the same in Canada, but I don't know that for sure. We do have uh, like our, how do I describe it? it? It's certainly a lot more difficult. Like I know in the States, you can also, it's almost like you can almost find out who owns the land, what their number is, that you can also find out family members that are maybe connected to that uh, property. But in Canada, you it is really difficult to get people's information. You can send out mailers though. Basically, you use the what you call a zip code and you can mail your newsletter or your offer to these landowners. They're going to have to reach out to you and then provide their information and their number and stuff. Hmm. But uh, for sure, it's a more protected in Canada than yeah. the US. Yeah. Now I'm wondering, is there um, information sources like apps that you can look up these properties? Because that's kind of a big part of our system as well. Because you know, any parcel in the United States, as soon as I get any sort of interest in it, I can look it up from my desktop here and find out tons of data about the property, all the satellite images, you know, topography, wetlands, all kinds of stuff. I can see it right on my screen. You know, the outlines of the parcel, everything. Is there anything like that where you guys? Not that I'm are? aware of. There mm-hmm. could be, but I, yeah, I'm not quite aware of them. Yeah, because like that, that would it'd be a tough business to do without that data, you know, especially doing it remotely. But, yeah, for sure. But I know um, a lot of investors from Canada that actually buy and sell properties in the United States. So, for sure, can you describe what does your mailer actually look like? This mail that gets sent, uh, yeah. you know, to the owner. Yeah, it's a two-page mailer. First page is describing who we are and why we're contacting them and what we can do for them. Second page is actually just a one-page basic purchase agreement. It gives the information on their property, like the parcel number, the number of acres, and an actual purchase price, and then some basic terms. 
And that's pretty much it. So we get some people that just sign that and send it back to us, you know? (laughs) You actually have a purchase offer on the mailer. Yep. That's maybe the part that you would be more difficult to do for sure in Canada. You could send a flyer saying, you know, I'm a land buyer type thing, interested in purchasing land, give me a call. But I don't know if you could get that kind of detail sent to each property. Owner. Yeah, yeah. And some investors do that here. They do the, you know, the basic one page letter saying, hey, I buy land, you know, give me a call, that type of thing. But uh, the method I use is kind of a direct offer situation. And it's based off of average values for a certain area. So it's hard to nail that number a lot of times because like we were talking about earlier, there's so much variation from one property to the next. It is a conversation starter and it gets the phone ringing. And sometimes we're right on, sometimes we're too low, sometimes we're too high and we've got to renegotiate the price. But regardless, it gets the phone ringing and we look at it in detail when they respond and we see what we can do. Um, yeah. So there'd be some fine print there, obviously allowing you to do further due diligence. Yeah. And we don't sign the of... offers when we send it out. You know, it's not signed by us. When it gets back and we can confirm everything, then we sign it as well. And we get the contract open with the attorney and title company. So can you maybe just do a quick high level, what kind of type of due diligence? Once a landowner maybe says, yes, I'm interested. I'm, hey, I want to sell this land. What kind of due diligence are you going to do then? Yeah. So it sets off a whole chain reaction of things on my team. First thing is that we get a photographer hired to go out, take photos of the property, to walk the property, do up a little report, drone photos as well. So that's a big part of it there. Once we have those back, we send those to our local broker or agent partner and send them the photos, send them any of the other due diligence we have and ask them for their opinion on the property. That's kind of another layer. We're also calling the city, the county, the municipality, whoever's in charge of that area and ask them any sort of potential restrictions on building, you know, what the zoning is for the area, utility availability, all those things we check into as part of a whole checklist of stuff that we go through. Also, we're buying things through a title company. So that basically they'll research the title history and they'll let us know if there's any sort of weird restrictions on the property or any sort of problem with the chain of title. So those are the major checks that we go through. And obviously we're looking at the value kind of really closely and just kind of making sure that we're going to be able to make money on it. Yeah, for sure. You ever buy a piece of land that you wish you would have kept? Yeah, there are a number of them that I wish we would have kept. But then on the other hand, I mean, what would I do with them? I mean, I'm sitting here in you know California and a lot of these properties are all the way on the other end of the country. So... You know, <laughs> I say that, but it's fine. I'm glad we sold them, I guess. So. And Okay. And then my next question, have you been keeping many? Like do you own, you know, a thousand acres somewhere and basically keep it in your own portfolio, maybe for a family uh, farm um, or something? No, nothing really is earmarked for us to hold long-term at this point. Nothing that I've got right now. I mean, not saying that something like that might not pop up at some point, but things that we have right now, we're not looking at in that way. Yeah. Basically, you kind of have your business structure in place and you're basically moving the land within that 60 day period. Right. I do want to purchase some properties specifically for uh, renewable energy development, like we were talking about solar farms specifically. So when I find a good one that might work well for that, I'm going to purchase it and hold it and then go through steps to develop into a solar farm because that's kind of a longer term home run type play, but not an immediate income thing. Any lessons learned? Like for you starting out, for sure you made some mistakes. Sounds like you kind of avoided losing money. Maybe, you know, you took it as a learning, but what are some things that you, you know, through these years that you now do differently than when you first started? When I first started, I wasn't really 
set on using local brokers and agents as part of the process. You know, I was starting to use them and and I did use them for a number of the first properties we did, but I also did some without the broker and agent partners. And I just sort of realized over time that, see, that's a whole half of the business that I don't have to worry about. If I list the property with someone who's really good that will actually do what they're supposed to do and sell the property for me, then I don't have to worry about the marketing side of things at all. And I know there's other investors that like that. They market everything direct to you know buyers and things like that. And I pay top commissions. I pay 10% commissions as well. So for me, it's just worth it. I mean, I know that they're probably going to be able to get 10% more than I would be able to do if I sold it directly. And they've got buyer's lists. They've got obviously a lot of local knowledge that really helps us out on the buy side as well. So that's one thing that's really become part of our process, but wasn't initially set in stone, but it's absolute must have now. Yeah, for sure. And then is this something that somebody can just, is there a way to scale if you're, you know, want to attempt to do some land flipping? You sound like you've scaled to a significant level, but how does someone even get started in this? Like, would it be cold calling in the US? Did you ever try doing cold calling when you started out? Uh, No, the only way we've ever generated business is just by direct mail. So that's really the best way, I think. I mean, you know, if you don't want to spend as much money on direct mail as I do and get a better bang for your buck, basically, and the way to do it is to really refine your list. So spend a lot of time like going through these properties and kind of weeding out properties that are, you know, have a very little likelihood of turning into anything. So if you really refined your list, you'd probably have a lot better return on your mail. For instance, it costs me about, on average, about $3,000 for every deal that I do. And, you know, I know investors that are able to get that down to like 1000 just because they spend a lot of time really, really narrowing down that list. But, you know, I kind of look at it in a different way. I'm like, well, I think maybe they're probably missing out on some deals that maybe I'm able to pick up just because I have a broader kind of shotgun approach to what I do. And, marketing. and honestly, uh, you know, our average profit per deal is about 22000 per deal. So it's still a really good return, whether it's $3,000 in cost per deal or 1000 It doesn't make a huge difference there, you know. I can't see door knocking working very well for this. <laughs> yeah, that probably wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah um, you know, but some, some investors text, you know, they do text blast type things, but that's kind of a little bit of a gray area. You know, there are ways I think to do it in a legal way and stay compliant, but they're really cracking down on those things. And, and a lot of people really don't like that method either. Of yeah, for sure. People get frustrated because you wouldn't be the only person doing it and you're they're getting multiple texts and it's just like, uh, you know, bombarded, right? So, right. I can see people getting frustrated. Is there a minimum value on a piece of land that you need enough meat on the bone, I guess, for it to work for you? Most of our purchases now are probably at about the 20,000 and above point. So I'd say our average probably purchase price, you know, just as a rough average would be maybe 50,000, something like that. I know buy cheaper properties in 20,000 sometimes, but it's just kind of hard to focus on those properties because even you can get some great returns on your investment, you know, like buy a $7,000 property and sell it for 21,000 or something like that. So obviously you'd be tripling your money and those are great returns. But, you know, then overall you're only making 14,000, which, you know, 14,000 is still a lot of money, but it's just tough to really scale the big numbers if I'm focusing on those properties. So I'm just trying to focus on the bigger properties at this point, but, you know, I'm not really not opposed to doing any deal, I guess you could say. (laughs) And what about land size? Is there a sweet spot? Like, uh, you know, like the three acre parcel or do you find that there is a sweet spot for 
Yeah, most of our stuff right now is, depending on the area, is uh, five to 10 acres plus. Plus could be 320. Could be a thousand. You know, the biggest one we bought was 650 acres. But, you know, I'm not opposed to going a lot bigger than that. But there's just a very few parcels that that are that size in, in a lot of these areas. And price obviously goes up significantly too when you're doing exactly that yeah. Size, yeah. So you gotta you gotta be willing to put a lot more cash out of your pocket, you know, to do some of those deals. For sure. And then what about legal considerations? Are there any legal considerations you gotta be thinking about? We close all of our deals through escrow, title, attorney offices, whatever the case is. But you know, I guess there's always legal potential legal issues that can come up. You know, we have one right now where we're working through it. It's an access issue thing. You know, basically it's a dirt road and there is um, a legal easement for our property to access through the dirt road and get to our property. But, you know, after we closed it and put it on the market to resell it, got a letter from an attorney representing one of the neighbors who claimed that we didn't have access through that dirt road. And I made sure before we closed it, you know, with our title insurance and so those are the kind of things you got to deal with sometimes. And then I had to hire an attorney to then tell their attorney that they're full of it. So <laughs> I see so stuff like that. But yeah. you know, in real estate, it's just a matter of there's always going to be issues that come up and you just have to work through them. How many spinoff deals do you typically get? Like if you, you know, are selling a piece of land and you're getting maybe the neighbor, you know, one neighbor talks to the other neighbor and you end up picking up some other land to sell. Is that very frequent? Um, it doesn't really happen too much. I do get some, I've had done a number of deals from the same seller. You know, like a, a lot of these property owners that they may own a bunch of different parcels in a certain area. And maybe they just were in a mode in their life one time, at, you know, accumulating these properties. And and then they're in this phase of like moving on from them because they have no need for them. So that happens sometimes. So I'll buy one property and then they'll contact me after we close that and they'll say, Hey, I've got this other property. And then after we buy that one, they'll contact me a couple of months later and say, Hey, I got this other property, even though we're asking them the whole time, you know, like what else do you want to sell us? And, you know, so that happens sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And then like in Canada, we're, I guess we are considered in a recession in the U S uh, officially in a recession. Has that been impacting your business at all? You know, there has been a slight effect, I guess you could say. And the effect I've seen is maybe more, properties fall out of contract than before. Not like a dramatic thing by any means, but if I were to really study things and really kind of take notice, like I think that's more frequent than it used to be because things were super, super hot before. I think they're more normal now. Obviously, we may be technically in a recession, but most of these areas I'm dealing with, it's not a struggle to sell these properties at the right price. As of right now, at least, land is not as tied to interest rates as a single family residential home is just because People aren't getting loans in many cases to actually buy them. So it's less volatile. You know, these rural properties didn't go up as high as some of the residential areas, but they're not like falling uh, in any way yet either. So they they may fall a little bit or they may drop a little bit at some point, but it's not going to be these huge wild roller coaster swings. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other thing is we've got, you know, inflation considerations too, because land is the ultimate asset. So in an inflationary environment, real assets like that should gradually increase in value over time. And so I think we've got that upward pressure on that as well. For sure. And, and depending on where the land is, I mean, all land is probably, I'm sure, appreciated, but depending on where it's located, some land is, I mean, significantly, right? If it was close to water, right. that kind of thing. Uh, there's been a lot of millionaires made from owning land. Yep. Okay, we're getting close to the end. going to hit you with just a few quick, uh, more personal rapid response questions. Fire away. Okay. So what's an app or software you use either in your business or personally that you couldn't live without? We talked about it briefly. 
the one thing that's uh, really essential to our business is an app called MapRite. And that's the one that allows us to basically look up any parcel in the United States. We can look up everything about it. We can look up, you know, we can see the all the satellite images. There's numerous satellite image providers that we can pull up as far as the base map goes. But then we see the property lines. We see uh, wetlands areas. We see the topography. Obviously, see the roads and wetlands, everything. FEMA flood zone. So there's just so much data you can get from it. And you can get a really good idea of what the property is all about just from using that app. And obviously, you don't see everything from satellite images. so. That's why it's an important part of our process to actually send someone out to the property and get pictures on the ground and from the dr- a drone and everything. But it really helps us out tremendously for what we do. Yeah, for sure. And then what, what about a favorite? Do you have a favorite book or movie? One of my favorite books that I've read somewhat recently has been Atomic Habits. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one, but yep. really solid book. If you're looking to you know make progress in your life, it's really about those habits that you have to build in order to hit those goals. It's not about just setting a goal. It's more about like, what kind of habits do you need to put in place to make sure that you achieve that goal? So I just love the concept and uh, a lot of very very practical advice in that book. Yeah, definitely. And then where do you see yourself in five years? What's your next pivot? You sound like maybe solar farm, something like that. I know that's where the money is going, you know, especially in the United States here, there's a lot of attention that is going to be moved uh, there, you know, an intention, I mean, money and tax breaks and lots of different things. So I see the money moving there, which means that I think that there's going to be a giant opportunity and doing what I do think it really puts us in a unique position to pick up a lot of properties and do very well on those things. So I want to continue to build our land investment company and make it one of the biggest land buyers in the United States. But on the other hand, I think there's a big opportunity to also work on some of those longer term projects like that to to really build some long term wealth. Mm, yeah. What type of activities like doing outside of land flipping? Well, just love spending time with my family. Um, every day go for a walk with my wife for about an hour, hour and a half. So that's kind of a good our kind of meeting time, I guess you could say. We've got two dogs and a cat. So love just spending time with the family. And um, that's kind of our big thing. I work out every day. I guess that would be a personal hobby. But you're definitely looking more tan than me here in cold <laughs> Canada. <laughs> I try to get out every day, I guess. And the other thing is, for some reason, I always get very, uh, <laughs> even when I don't spend much time outside and wear sunblock and everything, I always get so like orange. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you've been on a beach for a couple of days yeah. for sure. Yeah, or, or longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome, man. And then what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, best way is to check out our website, which is called uh, turningprofit.com. And on the website, I do a monthly income report, which is basically a rundown of everything that goes on in our land flipping business that particular month. So I break down the revenue, our profit, each and every deal that we did, you know, like what we bought it for, what we sold it for, how many days we held it for, a bunch of notes on that property, what went well, what maybe didn't go well. And then some kind of year-to-date things of where we're at. So I do a a big blog post on that and uh, also a video associated with that. And, uh, you know, we have a podcast that my wife and I just launched called Turning Profit as well. And we talk a lot about land flipping and other real estate investing too, but a big focus on land flipping. And then one other thing associated with that is that we just started a community for people to learn about land flipping. I don't have any sort of products or courses or anything like that to sell, but I'm actually working on a free one, which I'm going to kind of release to everyone in that community. So 
But the website turningprofit.com has links to all everything, our YouTube channel and social media and all that stuff and our community as well. So amazing. I'll be checking it out. Great. Yeah, sounds good. There'll be links in the show notes as well. Perfect. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the show. I learned a lot. I'm sure my listeners learned a lot as well. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me, Corey. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.